Welcome back to the World Extreme Medicine Podcast with myself, Wayne Walker. In, my, in this conversation, I'm talking with Wayne Orton around his journey through the military, joining the Royal Marine Commandos, specialising as a sniper within the military, then progressing and transitioning through into pre-hospital care as a paramedic, then in, as a CCP, and then finally his recent transition to mountaineering and alpinism in Chamonix in the French Alps. Wayne has also published a blog around his experience with high-performing teams as a, and as a common concept of high-performing teams, it's come out through his transition through both the military, pre-hospital care and into mountaineering. And so what we wanted to do today is really tap into his experience and this concept of high-performing teams within these three domains. So welcome to the podcast, Wayne. Good morning. Thank you very much for having us. It's, uh, it's always a pleasure. It's great, mate, to uh, to have you back. You're not a stranger to uh, to to the World Extreme Medicine podcast, nor to the live sessions. So it's uh, it's great to have you back. Yeah, thanks. So what we're going to do within the session is really just, like I said before, tap into some of Wayne's military. Uh, perspectives and experience around his role as a sniper and some of the nuances and details there. We're also going to look at some of the fundamentals around Wayne's involvement within the Royal Marine Commandos in this idea of high-performing teams within the unit. We're also going to look at his transition and key elements he brought through from his military into pre-hospital care. Then we're going to look at the fundamentals of critical care um, around high-performing teams. And then we're going to also look at the transition into the French Alps and how climbing uh, and again being part of a high-performing team has been part of Wayne's experience. So Wayne, if I could just get you initially, if possible, to speak to your route into the Royal Marine Commandos and your path through to becoming a sniper. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think my routine is probably very similar to a lot of guys and girls that joined the military. Um, certainly, through, like I decided I was going to join the military from a young age, so I was very disengaged through school. I think uh, the only kind of good GCSE results and stuff was probably PE, and believe it or not, English. Um, so yeah, so I, I was disengaged quite a bit with school. I then left school, had a few part-time or, or kind of ad hoc jobs that I just walked away from, wasn't that interested and thought, right, this is where I need to be. Um, my kind of careers advisor at the time, he, I got a letter through the post saying, right, I went in for an interview. These are the, the professions that we recommend. Uh, one was a gardener, the other one was a Royal Marines commando. So I chose the Royal Marines commando route. Um, and that's the kind of route I went. And it was quite strange because the day I was going to join up, um, I was just stepping out the door and I was going to join the parachute regiment, believe it or not. Uh, and I got this letter through and I'd never really heard of the Royal Marines. So I thought, right, I'll give these guys a shot. Uh, so careers office, I went, uh, had to do so many pull-ups in front of them. And then they said, right, fill this paperwork in. And then a few weeks later, I got an interview or a an appointment, sorry, to do the PRMC, which is a potential Royal Marines course, um, which is a three-day kind of physical course, which lets me look at the Marines, uh, and if it's what I want to do, but it also lets the Marines look at the kind of the recruits or the potential recruits. Um, so, yes, yeah, so I went down there, got thrashed for three days, and then passed it, and then I got offered my kind of training 30, 30 weeks down at Limson, it was at the time. Um, where you go down, you're living in a massive block and you transition from being a civilian 
into kind of basic soldier into royal marine and then into your commando training and so they'll teach you everything down there from uh so obviously you get there you get your hair cut it's very much like what you see on the tv and a lot of screaming and shouting initially when you get off the train they've got their own train platform down there you you go up your block is like could be anything from 30 to 60 blokes in this big dormitory uh, you just learn to live together. They teach you how to wash yourself. They just teach you how to administrate yourself, basic drill, things like that, ironing, um, get everyone on a kind of similar level, similar playing field, and then progress you through um, like that. And it, it is just kind of the break you down, get that civilian side out of you, and then make you into this, this Royal Marine that comes out the other end of it. So Wayne, as you're sort of placed into different environments, because like you said, it's the real, a real transition from civilian life to, to military life, um, and you're starting to be placed into maybe training environments and then into real environments, did you, did you have um, teaching or training around um, environment scanning in a dynamic environment, just that situation awareness, or is it something you just develop through the progression of your career in the military? Yeah, it's a strange. It's a strange one. Obviously, it's taught from from kind of day one and training that whole situational awareness, and then throughout your training, um, you're kind of uh, picking up the skills. You're scanning the ground. You're looking for what's normal, what's not, what not in there, what is not normal. Sorry. Um, yeah, so it is kind of like it's a lot of it's just not the right word a lot of, it's certainly experience where you start to look for things out of the ordinary and you start noticing people here then everywhere or you start noticing the ground around you that sh shouldn't be there uh, there's a bit of dew being wiped off that piece of grass just little things like this you know is that vehicle parked there which it shouldn't be parked there um and there's a there's a saying in the military and it's that kind of um absence of the normal presence of the abnormal um so it's kind of a common analogy you'll go into a marketplace type thing that's busy all the time and then one day it's quiet like right there's something not right here and it gets you kind of spidey senses tingling but i think a lot of it is experiential it is learning it's being aware of it obviously but then going into these situations and, and finding out you know and uh, it, it's just a it's a huge thing within within the royal marines that you kind of drilled into you know so just looking at, you know, like you said, the basics, basic training and there's a real sense of discipline instilled within you. But as you're progressing through your military career and you're starting to maybe look at becoming a part of a high performing team, it, I, there, there seems to be a real sense of sort of homogenous self-regulation or auto-regulation within the team. So the team starts to look after each other, that you've had the discipline instilled. So it's actually now a sense of almost homeostatic um, self-care within the team rather than imposed from, from from the outside could you maybe speak to that and into indeed into your progression into a high performing team within the sniper unit yeah it's, it's quite interesting actually because at the time you don't realize you're operating within a high performing team so all my time in the royal marines i obviously had this self uh, this sense of pride of what i was a member of and stuff like that but i never really thought oh, i'm part of a high performing team um so it's, it's kind of uh, it started from day one and it started the fact that you look after yourselves. Uh, there's a lot of military history taken. So you, you become part of this organization. You get this self, uh, this sense of self pride, 
proud to be part of this massive history and reputation of the Royal Marines. Uh, and it, it starts to get kind of instilled to you quite early. Um, and then you, you pass training, Royal Marines, hopefully. Then you go to your, your fighting unit or your commando unit. Uh, and you, you're put into your little kind of sections. So you're, you're in these little groups. Uh, and the, the bond is huge. You know, you leave training, you've built this massive bond with the guys there. Then you all separate and you have to join a fighting company. Um, and then the bond that you form with these guys uh, for, through training, just through that kind of sense of what everybody's been through already, just through passing training, you know, everyone's on a similar level as you. Um, it, and yeah, and it's kind of throughout your career, it's kind of instilled in that way. Um, the, the way I, so I, I loved it. I loved being a part of that fighting company and stuff, but I thought there's something, there's something else there. And I, I started to get overlooked a little bit for a few things. Um, there was an analogy that I had lead boots on, like I wasn't going anywhere. Um, probably because I did enjoy a bit of socializing and, um, what have you. But what happened then was I decided, right, I'm going to say yes to the next thing that comes through that door. Just one, one, it was really strange. And, uh, it, it was a massive gamble because it could have been right. Who wants to be a chef? Who wants to be a clerk? Uh, who wants to go away for this? Whatever. Then the the troop sergeant come through and said, right, who wants to volunteer to do a sniper course or the sniper selection? And I was like, right, me, I'm doing it. So hands up. Got on the sniper selection, which was a week long in the unit, and it covered things like shooting, cam and concealment, um, kind of teamwork, uh, observation stances, so for looking for little things in the in the woods or in a field. You pass that, you then go on to your 11 weeks uh, training as a sniper down at Limston, which is quite a respected course. Uh, there was a lot of kind of uh, external agencies came in to do this course, forces from like the Dutch, places like that. And then that's 11 weeks where they're teaching you how to firstly shoot, um, just like at normal ranges, so between 100 and 300 metres, and then that gets progressively longer, up to 1,000 metres. They're learning how to do calm and concealment, um, how to stalk, which is kind of sneak up on people, um, getting your map reading up to a, a really high standard. Uh, and it's kind of the pinnacle, and your soldiering skills have to be really uh, on point for this. And this is where that that kind of time in the fighting unit in the in four or five commando kind of came through it was like right i've learned my skill there i've learned the trade i know how to operate as a, a team member uh i actually was a two ic of a section back then i've got all these skills i now need to up the level and i'm going to take it into this sniper environment um but like i say at that time i didn't really know i was part of a high performing team um, and it wasn't until maybe five years ago when someone asked us something about high performing teams and um, how did it work within the Royal Marines? I then started thinking, ah, oh, hang on a minute. Yeah, we had, we were drilling all the time. We were training all the time. We worked together. We knew each other's strengths, weaknesses, all this stuff that kind of forms this this high-performing team mentality. Um, but at the time, I, I didn't really appreciate it. I was just like a young lad, right, this is what I'm going to do. I, don't, I, I hope that makes sense. Absolutely. Absolutely. And just looking at some of the concepts of high performing teams, you know, continual commitment to improve. Did you have after action reviews or indeed just a, even just a, a, even in training, just simple debrief to, to try and recollect incremental change, incremental improvement? Yeah, so debriefing was a massive thing. So certainly uh, any kind of training sessions or training scenarios, you would you would debrief. So if you'd done something called a section attack, 
uh, you would you would debrief that what what went right what went wrong how to improve it um, things like what you call break contract drills where you, you you take fire from one side then you have to get out of that situation you then debrief that how that worked um, and then throughout your career you're getting kind of um, like reports so a yearly report your troop sergeant troop commander will write a report on how you're doing and grade you and um, to certain levels yeah so and give you a little write-up where you can improve what you're doing really well how you can improve and things like that so interviewing previous uh, either special forces soldiers or military personnel they do sense speak of the sense of community and brotherhood um that there's a real there's a real notion of looking after each other and this regulation of team uh, and not just of self it's actually team before self uh, could you maybe speak to that actually and 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 how strong that was because interestingly from a few of the colleagues they say they can't they couldn't articulate it at the time but it was what they missed from military was actually that sense of close community and they couldn't maybe articulate or put their finger on it but that's truly what it was yeah, it is. It's very, it's very clever action. I don't know if the Marines do it on purpose or if it's just a byproduct. But like I say, at the start of training and throughout your training, you're getting a lot of military history, like history of the Marines. So they're building this, this big thing. I don't want to use the word cult, but you, you get really bought into this, this big team. Um, you want to do well for the guys that have passed, uh, like in the history there you want to do well for your team and you want to do well for yourself um, so I was pretty bad at school my discipline was awful um, and everyone said oh you'll never join the military because your discipline's really bad but I thought right I'll give it a shot and it, it isn't that same type of discipline because you have this respect for the person who's telling you what to do um, they've obviously got experience so you you respect that experience um, and you want to do well for to, it sounds really bad but you want to do well for your team and to look good for you you want to be the best you can be so that discipline and wanting to do well comes from that that feeling of self-pride um, and pride within the royal marines and because you're living together as a group of blokes um or a group of group of men you just you're living in each other's pockets uh, you, you see each other at the worst at the best when people are down when they're happy and it just forms this bit this bond and I think one of the biggest things for high-performing teams and um, kind of like forming these bonds is vulnerability. So if you've all been vulnerable at, at kind of a similar point or you see other people's vulnerabilities, it kind of knocks down a bit of a wall and you become a lot closer. And I see that in what I do now. If we have a horrific job or a, a really dodgy flight where you think, ooh, this is a bit risky, then when you come off, there's... You, you just seem a bit closer to that person that you were with or the, the team you're with. And that's the same in the core when you're in these awful conditions uh, and positions, you just, you have a little bit of a laugh, but you see the vulnerability and that makes you even closer. Um, and I, th I think that's probably one of the biggest things that forms these bonds is that vulnerability. So looking at your transition through to pre-hospital care. So maybe if you could just walk us through the, 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 the final stages of your military uh, career and and what maybe prompted the move into into pre-hospital care and what you also carry through because making decisions in an information light environment is ubiquitous looking at 
leadership within these the, within these environments is also ubiquitous and carried through. Could you just maybe walk us through the final stages of your military career and then the transition through and what you did carry through? Yeah, so I was I was like I was wondering whether I should. This was quite a hard one to get the grips of. Like, why did I leave? Um, so I, I would like to say it's because I grew up, but I definitely didn't. Um, people still ask us when I'm going to grow up, so it obviously wasn't that. But I left. So there was a there was a bad year for for the the corps in general. There was a lot of a lot of guys that I knew uh, got killed and stuff like that. So that was maybe a factor. Um, the second factor is I went and done special forces selection and failed it. So I then went back to do it again. And I walked through the gates of Senny Bridge to start it, got there, turned around and drove back to the my unit and put my, my notice in, like just like that, notice to leave. Um, so it was kind of, I think they were the two factors. So I always wanted to get special forces. That was my dream as a kid. Those were the books that I read. That's what I wanted to do. But then just something wasn't there. I just turned around, right, that's me done. And it was it was absolutely as instant it was as instant as I just about turn, go back, there's my notice, I want to leave um, in, in 12 months' time. That's how it works. Um, so, yeah, so I left. Did I have a plan? Not really. I thought it was going to be something interesting, like the police or something like that, um, but also like the oil and gas industry at the time. And then my neighbour said, my neighbour's quite high up in the ambulance service, and she said, why don't you become a paramedic? And I didn't know a great deal about that. And I was like, right, okay, let's have a look into it. And I said, I don't have the education because this was one of the first degree courses. And that person then gave us a wink and a nod and said, you do have the education. Um, so got on the course and then kind of loved it from there. I, I love, so I did like the medical side of uh, the training. I enjoyed that. Um, and then just kind of took it from there. Absolutely loved it. And then uh, a couple of years later, I qualified as a paramedic after the degree course. Um, what was the other question about the like decision making type of thing and how I do how I brought that from the core to what I do now? Um, yeah, it's it's really funny. Um, so I, I do like working in shades of grey, and that's in the pre hospital setting. That's where we work. It's never like a yes or no, black and white situation. It's always just trying to find your feet, um, and that's kind of always the environment that I love working in, that's where I kind of thrive. Um, but I think it's a lot to do with pre-planning. So you have to know your team, um, things like that, know what their strengths and weaknesses are. Um, and then when you get to these big jobs, you, you need to just take a moment. Obviously, unless things are going wrong really quickly. So, uh, for example, in the Marines, if you got shot at from the left-hand side, you go to an immediate action drill and it was automatic. It had been drilled and drilled and drilled. That's just what you've done. Turn to the left, start firing, and then start getting out of there or win the, whatever you have to do. Um, but if you have the time, just take a step back, assess the scene and try and take in that kind of what's happening in front of you and then prioritise in your head, right, this needs doing, this needs doing. Um, and then try to trying to get what is important first, get it done. But to aid with that as well, you need to kind of offload stuff. You need to delegate. So that's where the strength in the team comes in, knowing your team. So you can then delegate something and trust it to your team members. So, right, yeah, this needs done, this needs done. Right, I'm going to give it to you. Then I can think of other things. 
um, and it, it's mega important to to kind of delegate. Um, yeah, that, that's that's kind of how I, I bring it from the the Marines. I don't get too excited. I don't rush in. I don't run into jobs. I just take a step back, have a minute, a bit of self talk. Right, this is what needs doing. Um, let's work it from there. But I certainly think that the team trust is is huge because it's no good you delegating to someone and then constantly thinking in the back of your mind, oh, are they doing that right? Are they doing that right? And then before you know it, you have to go over and check, which is taking up a bit more of your your capacity. So you transition into being a paramedic uh, from from the military, and then what excites you, or indeed just draws your attention to critical critical care? How did sort of the critical care piece start to sort of fit into place? So I think the type of people that the Royal Marines attract are kind of people that want to do well and they take pride and they. Um, they want to be the best as kind of corny as that sounds and that's how i perceived kind of critical care so as a paramedic you can do so much uh, you've got a set of skills that you can work towards but i felt that i needed to offer my patients more and i felt i had that ability to do that um so i knew right how do i offer these patients more and the way to do that is to to get to become part of a critical care team um and at the time, it's kind of, I thought, right, the critical care is the kind of pinnacle of pre-hospital care. Uh, certainly for paramedics, there's nowhere else that you can kind of go from from there at the time. Um, I don't know if that's true now. As you get older and you've been doing it a while, I don't know if it still is the pinnacle or what, but that was my thought process. Um, I want to do more for the patients. I want to be the best I can, and I want to learn more stuff, um, more more kind of medical um interventions drug therapies things like that and that was kind of that was the the driving factor why i then went to critical care so looking at uh, the critical care team we joined a fantastic service up in scotland the emrs uh, service um you just so transitioning into that team there's a couple of ubiquitous themes which which definitely play a factor in high performing teams around training analogs so train hard, fight easy, and also the utility of mastering the basics or mastering the essentials and just being really consistent over time at the essentials. Maybe if we could just look at training analogs first, could you maybe speak to the the utility and the ubiquitous concept of training analogs but from the Royal Marine Commandos because there's lots of training that happens there to your time as a CCP, critical care paramedic within EMRS and training analogs there because they seem to and you know from my personal experience really do equip you for these real life experiences because you have this analog of comparison yeah totally um kind of training and drilling and drilling is is really important you know and everything that you do in that sense reduces that kind of pressure that cognitive load on scene because it's it's a, it's a familiarization situation that you've been in so it's important to get like the skills that you can then make muscle memory up to scratch so that you're not having to think about those little things uh, when you're on scene or uh, on ops in the, in, the, in the Royal Marines or whatever. So, uh, for example, we would constantly train break contact drills because we're quite a small team. Um, we'd also we'd break, we'd, uh, train, rehearse these quite a lot. So we're listening for uh, verbal commands, which would then instinctively 
get you to to perform a action so if it's again contact left everybody swings to the left starts getting a starts firing that direction and then peeling away uh, and getting out of that situation someone will be tasked with popping smoke uh, all this type of stuff it just becomes instinctive you know where you everything is on your kit um, and you take that into the pre-hospital setting or to the critical care team that I work in now so we train every day so we'll have scenarios every day um, on real based on real life kind of incidents um, we'll go through our kit every single day so we know where everything is because the last thing you want to do on scene when someone says can you pass me the the jiggly saw and you're like ah what pouch is that in again it just these little things can tip you over the edge when you're getting stressed out um, we'll talk about case-based discussions uh, like best practice how you can treat how we can improve our practice and then we'll look at for example we look at our badge cam footage if we've done a, a big a big procedure we'll look at our badge cam footage and we'll look at the environment around us our own situational awareness how we're communicating to each other the kind of colloquialisms that we use how they can be misunderstood the time it takes because uh, it's, it's a massive time vacuum when you're doing these procedures you lose all concept of time um, and then we'll try and make these small marginal gains you know like all right don't say that you could say this which would then make things a bit easier um, but like I say everything that we do is to reduce that cognitive load and we, we sometimes do a bit of stress inoculation but we're not too sure how um, how effective that is whether that is a good thing or a bad thing yet there's there's evidence either way so um it depends who's running the scenario but yeah it's really hard because it's very artificial the stress inoculation that you put in in a training environment to what you actually faced on scene um so yeah it's just drilling and drilling that's kind of what we do at the, at the moment uh, with our critical care team which is what i've done previous as well so looking at learning the basics or indeed the essentials of of critical care and indeed of being a sniper um could you maybe speak to how you confer that to others so i think one of the, my revelations around critical care it's not necessarily just your competence or indeed your skill it's it's actually mentoring others on scene and around you to instill confidence within them and to, to mentor them in the moment and not being scared to give people a second chance or third chance and optimize optimize conditions for them could you maybe speak to that in your own practice Wayne and how you instill the the essentials within other people or indeed just advocate for them yeah I think as a critical care practitioner everyone thinks you know, this kind of uh, you're going to fly in in your red suit with loads of syringes and this, that, the other. And, and that isn't the majority of work. We're there to kind of support the teams on the ground, so the ambulance crews or whoever's at the fire service or police. Um, and depending on the situation, like we certainly want to give, uh, if we can offer it, training's probably the wrong word, but advice, encouragement, like you say. So, for example, a, a new paramedic who hasn't put an IO in, an introsseous needle, we'll kind of say right this isn't a mega time critical job this patient needs an IO would you like to do it and we'll facilitate that and we'll, we'll kind of give them pointers um, you know but equally we're happy to kind of learn off the crews as well but it, it's your, your soft skills uh, they're, they're the biggest challenge you know and it's how to deal with people because I think as paramedics and ambulance crews 
historically were quite stubborn and like, oh, you're rocking up here telling me what to do. So it's how you kind of judge, how you, you work that. And you really have to get them on side and say, look, we're not here to take over. We're here to work with you guys and offer those extra little interventions that we can do. And if we can get you involved, then we will, which will then develop your skills and stuff like that. Um, I don't know if that, that kind of answers answers your question, but it's been a massive uh, learning thing for me because people don't respond well. So when I first started as a paramedic, left the Marines, people didn't respond as well to my kind of, what I'm going to say, commands, um, because people then get the back up and they then just go and sit in the ambulance, go, all right, talk to me like that, are you? So it's about adjusting. And that is one of the hardest things of transitioning from a military world to a civilian world is, Right, people aren't going to respond well to, to how you were spoken to or how you speak to people uh, in the military. And uh, yeah, it took us a, a little while to work that out. But I think I'm there now. <laughs> so Wayne, can we just look at the transition through to living in Chamonix uh, and what life looks, looks like now? How did that come about? What have you learnt? And indeed, um, how, how is it going at the moment? Um, yes, yeah. so I, I feel really guilty when people ask us this because <laughs> um, I kind of moved out there to what I would say refill my cup. All right, so for the last twenty years, I've been whether in the military or doing um, kind of paramedic stuff, winchman, CCP stuff, and I just thought, right, I've had enough of this. I'm not getting excited anymore about these big jobs that normally I'll get a little bit of buzz of excitement. Right, this will be really good. Um, and I kind of lost that excitement and that thrill to fill my cup. So I decided, right, I, I like mountaineering, I like climbing. Let's go and try and do this kind of full time, not as a profession, but take a bit of time out, work, out, out of work, concentrate on being out in the hills, in the mountains, learning this trade, because this is a, a massive challenge for me. Um, and then see if I can kind of gradually push myself into more of an expedition medicine, combine the two, my, my kind of, I would say passions, I am passionate about pre-hospital care and medicine and stuff, but also climbing and alpinism and see if I can bring them together. So my life, <laughs> my life now is kind of climbing, skiing in season, uh, and I'm also doing the diploma in mountain medicine because I'm quite time rich at the moment, which I haven't been previous. Um, and that's kind of, my life so it's yeah sitting in a cafe in chamonix drinking espressos <laughs> so yeah i do feel really bad about saying it when people say oh so what do you do out there i'm like oh, climbing and skiing and that's it so wayne could you speak to what kind of leadership you were modeled within the military and what you carried through into pre-hospital care and and preferentially what how you lead within pre-hospital care um in the Marines, I was kind of expected to be to get there and just start being shouted at and bellowed at and uh, just this massive aggressive behaviour and stuff. But that isn't that isn't the case. There's very little. Um, there's very little shouting. It's very much like you know your parents when they say they're disappointed in you. Uh, they're not angry, but it always had the caveat at the end of you can stand by, which means right, you know you're in trouble. Um, you've made a mistake. Uh, but there's very little there's very little shouting uh, i think uh, there's kind of a there's a there's a mixture of of leadership's kind of styles w within the, the marines you know and it, it depends on the situation it depends on the task the objective things like that uh, and that, that's very similar to what i do now so I th 
the majority of time it was very much because I worked in quite a small team and you've been you know you're quite a senior marine uh, and you, you've kind of demonstrated yourself and you've got a bit of experience there was definitely a bit of a democratic uh, leadership style amongst amongst the kind of guys or um the troop sergeant or whatever would kind of get input from everybody um obviously the, the final decision was his as to what happens uh, I, th- I thought that worked really well and there's also which is very similar to democratic but like a, a team leadership style where uh it's very similar but the kind of in in the fact that it's all about the the goal uh, the team and then the individual so the leader isn't so much focused on themselves it's very much like this is the the team goal this is what we need to do and with this style of leadership you kind of know the strengths and weaknesses of the team and you'll allocate roles accordingly and you kind of know who works well with who or, or whatever so it, it wasn't that kind of sh- it was very structured it wasn't that kind of shouty um that kind of shouty leadership where you, you commanded what to do and don't get us wrong there were situations when that was needed you know in in, st- in still is and the situations now in pre-hospital care which which i kind of wish i could use that style of leadership but it doesn't it doesn't really work um and I think there was there's maybe a bit of charismatic leadership in the Marines as well. So you'd look upon that have you'd look upon people who've got a lot of experience who are kind of um what's the word like uh experience, you kind of role model type thing, and you kind of follow them due to you know they've got good experiences, it's obviously a good decision, which there is a bias for this, which I can't remember. You'll probably know what the bias is where you just follow someone because you think they know what they're doing due to their past experience. Um so there was an element of that, and I think it's very similar now to what I do. So our pre-hospital team is very – we try and flatten the hierarchy type thing. There is a democratic leadership style, um, and, and that changes. Like I could lead a job, uh, and the doctor follows, or the doctor can lead a job and they follow, or we could be led by a fire service or um, a paramedic on the ground. It's, it's, it's a fluid situation. You know, there's no one leadership style fits all. And, and that was evidence through the Marines and also through what I do now. When could you speak to the element of sort of high performing teams you, you see within the EMRS and that you brought with it from the Royal Marine Commandos? Um, in, in it's just yeah the similarities, um, any any disparities as well. So any any dissimilarities as well. But could you could you speak to the yeah the concept of high performing teams within critical care? Yeah, there is a there's a lot of similarities. The the biggest thing, it's not a similarity, but it's it's quite hard to kind of judge the, the two teams because in the Marines you're living together, working together, you're living the job itself. It's a it's a way of life. Whereas when you leave, you become a, a paramedic. It's very much a a job uh, where you come in, you go home at night. Uh, a little bit different in in my role because we're kind of on, constantly on call with uh, major incident calls and things like that. But you're not living the life as much as you were in the Marines, so you don't get that bond. Um, and because we're quite a small team, we don't get to socialise as much as we would like to. The kind of um, comparisons or the similarities have come down to where you've got an overall goal. So the overall goal is the patient. Uh, so you're, you're constantly working to make sure that you're providing the best care you can as a service to that patient. Uh, the, other, the other overall goal is the kind of team reputation and uh, kind of 
the esprit de corps, the, the kind of, um, yeah, doing well for, for the team as AMRS. We have a bit of a reputation and we want to maintain that. Um, so is it something like that? In terms of the training, uh, constantly drilling, constantly getting slick, um, making those marginal gains everywhere we can. So, it, and also, like I was saying before, the vulnerability, there is a bit of vulnerability there, not so much because we're not as open as we would be with guys that you're living and breathing with, and you know, but we do have that. We do show that vulnerability uh, and that openness and honesty. You know, if you make a mistake, you'll admit to it and say, this is, I made this mistake, I think it was this reason, that reason, and then your, your partner will say, well, I think it may have been this, let's look into it a bit further. Um, so, yeah, it's that kind of open, honest culture, the training, the drilling, uh, and the kind of reputation and that kind of vulnerability, I think, are the main things that you can bring from the Marines to, to what I do now. So what elements of your practice, Wayne, did you have to upskill to sort of progress into critical care? Was there was there a dramatic change in your practice or was it just more finessing the, the, the details? I think it's important to know that so I do have more advanced skills as a critical care paramedic, um, but I still do C, A, B, C, D, E approach to everything. Uh, so they're the basics there, your fundamentals and your bread and butter. You need to be able to do those really well. And for, for various reasons, it's a structured approach. You don't miss things, but also it gives you that little bit of thinking space. It's a bit of a get out of jail free card. Where are like, right, oh, I'm struggling now. Hang on a minute, I'm just going to reassess well your brain is thinking of other things that it could be to try and get you out of that problem. Um, in terms of upskilling, obviously, it's the obvious medical skills and medical procedures. So I don't know, things like let's go for some Gucci things, thoracostomies or thoracotomies, learning all these new skills uh, or putting someone on um, ventilating a patient or putting an arterial line in. These are all things that you don't do as a paramedic. So you, you do have like a, a, a training program to get the grips of these. Um, things like the, the in-hospital environment. So you could be at a roadside dealing with an RTC, which you're really comfortable with. And then an hour later or two hours later, you could be in a hospital somewhere um, anesthetizing someone to bring them back to a major city. And that in-hospital phase is quite alien for paramedics. Uh, so we need to, that was a skill that I needed to kind of uh, get on top of. Certainly the patient assessment. I was like, oh, how do I assess a patient, the patient who's already in a hospital bed? But it is exactly the same. It's that C, A, B, C, D approach. Uh, soft skills like I've already mentioned in terms of the communication, how I communicate to the crews and uh, other services on scene. Um, making sure the doctors don't get into trouble and upset everybody. That is one of the biggest skills that you need as a critical care paramedic. Uh, and you say upskill, but you also have to downskill a little bit, certainly from the military to, to what I do now and the fact that I need to be less pragmatic um which sounds really strange but i've been i've got in trouble quite a few times for being too pragmatic and that could be certain people view of risk is different to mine so i can't i don't know i can't set up a makeshift abseil and abseil down to goes to get a patient type thing or jump over a barrier to to get someone you know and I assess risk differently to other people, but you have to you have to play that game. So yeah, I need to downscale my pragmatism. <laughs> uh, 
and learn to hold your tongue a bit more. Like I see, you can't speak to people the way you would. You can't get things done the same way as you would previous. Um, but being a critical care paramedic is is more about the decision making when not to do a skill rather than to do a skill. That, you know, you get all these new skills that you want to use and stuff, but it's really important that you, you know, when not to use them. Um, and that's one, one of the biggest things. It sounds really good being a critical care paramedic, and it is, but it's not all doing all these interventions. It's about when not to, and the soft skills are probably 90% of, of what we do, just chatting and the decision-making, you know. Um, and I think that, that's mega important, and they're the, the two big things that I have learned because it's so good, isn't it? To all right, yeah, I can do that skill. It's dead easy. But then when it goes wrong, you're like, ah, I probably shouldn't have done that skill. So Wayne, let's look at where you are now, uh, based in Chamonix, doing a certain number of shifts back in Scotland within the within the EMRS, but very much centred around alpinism, like you spoke to actually around uh, taking a bit of time out for yourself and and actually learning to maybe master two two sets of skills or indeed two domains of practice. What have you learned around alpinism that you didn't previously know before moving out there, Wayne? <sighs> Yeah, so I am all about the, the challenge, you know, and um, so alpinism and kind of mountaineering is a completely different challenge, and it, it's really hard. And I'm loving the, the challenge. I have learned that I'm 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 pretty average at it. Uh, that I have a lot to learn. I kind of I think I have that conscious incompetence at the moment, or I know what I'm not good at. I don't know. I probably don't know what I'm not good at. So it's a strange one. Um, in terms of alpinism or um, anything like that and the kind of expedition medicine that I try and get into a bit more, it's very much, you can bring everything from the military, critical care, all into it. It's very much about the planning. It's who you climb with. It's having the trust in that person you climb with. Uh, it's having the trust in the equipment, know how to use it right. And again, just doing the basics really well uh, in terms of making sure everything's tidy and not so tidy. Uh, you haven't got pots and pans hanging off your your rucksack, things like that. Um, yeah, they're, they're, they're kind of main things. Uh, in it, the biggest thing it's it's a it's a serious environment. You know, like the high mountains are pretty serious in, uh, environment. When I see these mountain guides and the mountain rescue of Chamonix and stuff, I'm just like, whoa! Kind of take my heart off a bit. It's it's, it's another level. So yeah, we did a recent live um, Wemcast session with Pierre Muller actually, and talking about the PGHM service, so the so the uh, Chamonix uh, rescue search and rescue team, and it was absolutely to as as you say, you know, high performing team, but doing the drills, you know, l knowing your kit inside out, and good kit husbandry, uh, good situational and spatial awareness. Um, and knowing the perception of risk and how far to push it with risk. Could we maybe just come on to kit husbandry? Because I think that's maybe a big part of alpinism, but it also transcends critical care and also Royal Marine Commandos, sort of sniper high-performing teams. Could you, yeah, could you speak to the, to the kit husbandry concept, knowing your kit inside out and indeed taking care of your kit? Yeah, I probably get quite hard... Uh a hard deal about this because I'm, I'm not I wouldn't say I'm anal about it but it has if you look the part you feel the part and that's something that you always get taught um, and if like a little thing can then turn into a big thing especially in these environments so 
I'm very much like have everything kind of tidied away. Don't have loads of stuff hanging off you. Um, and especially on scene for kind of critical care jobs, I like the scene to be tidy. I like my little kit dump to be tidy. I don't like things blowing in the wind, shooting off all over because it just makes things, people walk over it. Um, you, you lose things when you need to get something quickly. Uh, so I am quite anal about kit husbandry, where it is uh, and taking care of it because it helps you look after yourself and this is part of your own professionalism. If you can look after yourself and your own kit, you can then look after others uh, in terms of patients or people in the hills, things like that. Um, yeah, it's super important to know where your kit is so that you can get to it quickly. Uh, and we are, we have a kit, we have a massive amount of kit and we'll go through it each day pretty much, just checking it, uh, knowing where everything is so we know, right, can you get the arterial lines out? We'll know what pouch they're in. Can you get the um, chest drain kit out? We know that's in the left lateral pouch of this bag, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and that helps, again, reducing that cognitive load, reducing that pressure, uh, and not tipping you over the edge to that kind of frazzle stage where things are just a bit too much. Um and again, that can relate to in the mountains or in the, in the cold environment, you know, knowing where your second pair of gloves are, uh, your warm kit, you need to get to it slick. Um, and it, it's about having your kit sorted so that you open a pack of gloves away. You know, if you lose a glove on a hillside, that's a little thing. But then over time, it develops into a big thing to something extreme where you lose your fingers, you know. So again, your kid husbandry is doing the basics well, just having it all squared away uh, and not kind of opening something up. And it's like a jack-in-the-box and everything pops up everywhere, which actually initially our surgical procedures pack was like that. It was so full, used to open it up and it just used to like spring open, like, oh, God. And it, it just, when you're stressed out and you're looking at the going, oh, these are just a lot of white wrappers. Now I need to try and find, I don't know, the skin stapler in mean, amongst all this stuff or the jiggly saw. I'm like, ugh. Um, so yeah, it's about having having your, your own admin sorted out, and then your team's admin, and it's just it's a bit of a it goes up the chain, doesn't it? Yeah, I can certainly relate to that. You know, when you're being shouted at for the finchettas uh, in a thoracotomy kit, and all you can see is a whole array of butchered butchering kind of tools and you can't find the the scissors or indeed the jiggly saw or indeed everything you want so it is you're right it's it's having that second sense and instilling that that unconscious competence uh whereby you you're informing your your unconscious brain so you know exactly where it is in in in, in your mind um, could yeah. you speak from that, Wayne? Could you speak to something you interesting you just said there about looking after your buddies? Because within mountaineering and alpinism, there, there seems to be a real theme around taking care of one another, which is carried through from very much military and indeed from, from pre-hospital care, from critical care, um, high-performing teams and indeed homeostatic teams. Could you speak to that and your experience of that within Chamonix? Yeah, it's quite, uh, it's an interesting kind of concept, you know, because um, in the Royal Marines, you're a, a self-contained organisation, so you've got everything, you don't have to rely on anybody else. Uh, that's very similar to what I do as a critical care paramedic. We are a little team and we can do everything that we need to do within that team. Obviously, the transport side of it becomes an ambulance issue. Uh, and that goes down to climbing as well. So it's 
to find climbing partners, it's quite difficult. Uh, the guys in Chamonix or who, who are living in Chamonix fully climb with the same person for a long time. It, it's it's building that trust and knowing someone that, you, that can rely on you, you know, and perform little things like a buddy check, you know, like someone picking up while you've got a bit of frost nip on your cheek or you've got a bit of frost nip on your nose or something like that, you know. And it's it's finding these people. And if once you find a good climbing partner, uh, they're worth their weight in gold because you know they've got your back. You know when you're pushing it a little bit, you know they're going to look after you. They've got you on that belay. Uh, they're not going to drop you. And similar, if you if you're moving together on a route, you know you know those guys are a good standard. Obviously, mistakes can happen, but they'll hopefully have their back. And it, it works both ways. And I think I think that's why I like climbing a mountaineer because you form that you're in a vulnerable position. You're forming that bond. Um, it, you, you're really close by the time you come off these routes and like I say you, you're climbing partner the people you climb with a lot are, are really good pals because they know a lot about you and they, they know how you act how you act and stuff like that So when as we come into land on the conversation could you maybe just um, speak to any take home messages that unite the three domains so anyone who's interested in either the military or indeed transitioning through to critical care practice albeit nurse paramedic doctor and is also interested in extreme environments could could you maybe speak to any take home messages or pearls of wisdom that you've learned through being in all three domains Oh, I love how you say pearls of wisdom. I don't think I've ever shared a pearl of wisdom. <laughs> um, so, yeah, the take-home messages, I obviously speak personally in the things that have benefited me. Uh, and the first thing is kind of learn your trade. Don't try and jump in uh, kind of like just don't try and go for things that you're probably not qualified for or as qualified the right way experienced enough for um, so make sure you've got the basics right because that will benefit you in the long run in terms of when this pressure starts mounting up whether that's more difficult jobs and um, more difficult situations if you've got those basics right you don't have to worry about those things you can start concentrating on the others so definitely get the basics right know what's right what's wrong um, that's my first thing and I think a lot of people probably say that mate like when I, when I hear your podcasts and various other things a lot of these ex-military guys will always say get your basics right or the advanced paramedics like yourself do the basics well first um, it is super exciting and you want to get to being a, I don't know what your goal is if you're interested in critical care but you want to get there as quick as you can but you have to you have to serve your time you know and uh, it's just just the way it is it benefits you in in the future um another take-home point would be be bothered so address the small things don't let them expand into bigger things and then they become even bigger things and before you know it you're in a total world of hurt so be bothered and that, you know what that's simple things uh you might be going right i'm going on a retrieval it's an hour and a half flight right i'm going to go to the toilet i'm not going to try and hold it in because before you know it, you're then concentrating on not needing the toilet, which then is detrimental to your patient and stuff. So just little things like that. And that's a, a pretty silly example, but it's a small thing that can develop into a bigger thing. Um, be honest with yourself and the team. Uh, kind of know your weaknesses, know your strengths, work on those weaknesses. Uh, was it a Jahari's window you done, mate? That's uh, pretty amazing, actually, to do and quite insightful. 
Um, just something like that. I don't know, but be honest with yourself and your team. Get rid of the ego. There's no place for ego anywhere because um, the kind of the downward spiral after being on an ego and you get caught out, it's like, oof, pretty big. Uh, and then go for it, you know, just keep pushing. Go and uh, follow your goal. Don't let everyone see, oh, no, you can't do that, can't do that. Just go for it. You know, that that is my biggest thing. And that's in, in the past where I've fallen down. I thought, oh, I'm not experienced enough or, or they said I shouldn't do that and I've wasted a lot of time and I should have just went for it. Um, so, yeah, go for it. I don't even know if they're high-performing team uh, kind of take-home messages, but that's kind of what I uh, what I see as. Wayne, that's fantastic, absolutely fantastic, and 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 it really does belie the 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 essence of community in 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 that concept. So just. Kit husbandry, doing the basics, good situation awareness, uh, no place for ego, knowing yourself and team, the zero point survey as well. So self, team, environment, patience, but absolutely looking after the team uh, in in that sort of homeostatic way, but whereby you can function optimally at, at all times. And you're right, self care is fundamental to that as well. So looking after yourself in 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 the whole process. Um, but you're right as well. Every day is a school day. And, and making sure that you are continually learning and continually on that journey. And we, as we spoke candidly earlier about high, about debrief and the, um, always debriefing because there's always points which, which can be team and self, um, revelations through, through, through actions. Um, so that's absolutely fantastic. Wayne, I'm mindful that, uh, of time, but I'm also mindful you've done an extended blog on, on high performing teams and your recollections of being a sniper and within critical care. So we'll put the blog posts or links to the blog posts in the show notes because they're fantastic reading actually for, for more in depth, uh, examination of these concepts so we'll we'll put that in the in the show notes we'll also put your social media handles because you've got some fantastic f- reflections uh, from social media within the within the show notes as well and it just leaves me to say thank you for your time today in sharing your recollection Wayne. No thanks very much for having us mate it's uh, like I say it's always a pleasure uh, I always learn something from you whether that's vocabulary or uh, something else <laughs> Thanks ever so much.